Hey guys, Anna Victoria here, and I'm so excited for you to join me on my podcast, Your Best Life. I'm the CEO and founder of the FitBody app, a fitness influencer, and a personal trainer. Every week, I'm going to have a special guest that will share their unique experience and unique story to share how they learned how to live their best life, even if they're still working on it, since we are all a work in progress. I can't wait to help you learn how to create your best life. Welcome back to Your Best Life with Anna Victoria and Luca. Hi, everyone. Today's guest is Dr. Aaron Carroll, who is a pediatrician and professor of pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine, where he is the vice chair for health policy and outcomes research and the director of the Center for Health Policy and Professionalism Research. He's written several books, most recently, The Bad Food Bible, How and Why to Eat Sinfully. He's also a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times' Upshot section. I'm so excited for this episode. There are so many different directions that I feel like we could take this. He obviously is a very educated man on many different topics pertaining to nutrition and obviously with pediatrics. So that's the area that I'm wanting to focus on since we have a baby coming. We're about to become parents, so there's definitely a lot of topics that we want to hear his stance on, right? It's yeah. uh, breastfeeding or uh, sleep and sleep training and vaccines. There is oh, yeah. array of different topics. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's probably, we're going to dive into some controversial topics and get down to the most up-to-date science. And, you know, honestly, like as a first time, soon to be first time parent, like there's so much information out there and so much quote unquote science that supports complete opposing sides. Um, so I'm really excited to dive into these topics and see what the actual most up-to-date research is. So guys, here is my conversation with Dr. Aaron Carroll. Hi, Dr. Carroll. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for joining us. There is so much that I am really excited to dive into. First, do you want to share with everyone a bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Uh, my name is Aaron Carroll. I'm a pediatrician and a professor of pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine. I am a health services researcher, which means that in general, I study how we can improve the cost, quality, and access to the U.S. healthcare system. Uh, but I've also got uh, a bunch of interests, including science communication. And I, in addition to having a reasonably popular YouTube show, I uh, write pretty regularly for the New York Times in areas of sort of health and health research and health policy. Amazing. I feel like there's so many different uh, layers and directions that we could go in diving into your expertise. But for today, I want to discuss mainly your pediatric knowledge and experience. I am currently 36 weeks pregnant. Oh, congratulations. My, thank you. And it's with my first. Okay. So, you know, uh, there's so there's just so much to learn and to research. And it can be kind of a scary world, not only for first time parents, but for parents in general. And so since I am going to be a first time mom, um, I didn't know exactly what to ask. Like I'm, I'm learning, you know, of all these things. So I reached out to my followers. I did an Insta story and I had them submit questions. Okay. And I got so many amazing questions. Um, so we're going to dive into probably the most asked and probably the most controversial topic, which is vaccines. Yep. And so I just want to preface this by saying like, the amount of people that like submitted their question saying like, 
what about vaccines? So scary. Or like, oh my gosh, what about the poison vaccines? Like there were, and there were other ones that were asking, like, how do you deal with anti-vax people? But, um, and just something that as a first time parent, I'm, I'm, I've obviously known for a while how controversial vaccines are, but I'm learning just how much so. So I guess to start, can you kind of just give an overview on your stance on vaccines? Yeah. So here's the thing, you know, vaccines aren't nearly as controversial as, as you would think based upon what you hear in the news. The truth of the matter yeah. is that the vast, vast, vast majority of parents vaccinate their children. Yeah. The thing is that a small but incredibly vocal minority not only do not vaccinate their children, but get an outsized amount of coverage by the media, which makes mm -hmm. it feel like that there's two sort of equal and opposite views on this. There are certainly people that, you know, oppose vaccines uh, for a variety of reasons. There are people that have, uh, you know, either ethical or religious or other reasons mm -hmm. that they don't want to have uh, vaccines. But uh, but they are a small group. Um, most kids are vaccinated. The vast, again, mm -hmm. the vast majority. So uh, first, I think it's important to say that that it's, you know, it, I don't think there is controversial. The media makes them to be controversial. They right. are, for the most part, widely accepted. In fact, there's very few things in the world that like 90% of people agree on. Vaccines happen to be one of them. Um, having said that, the overwhelming, and I mean overwhelming evidence, is that vaccines are incredibly safe and effective. There was a study done a number of years ago by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation uh, that looked at what kind of public health and preventive measures are cost savings, meaning that they actually save more money than they cost. In fact, this was in medicine. How many things do we do in medicine that save more money than they cost? Two things in all of medicine do that. Um, one of them is was recommending baby aspirin for people at high risk for a heart attack. The second is vaccines. Nothing else that we do, like widespread, is cost, like in other words, has so much bang for the buck that we actually save more money than we spend. Vaccines are probably the number one public health advance of the last century, uh, have probably saved more lives than almost anything else we've ever done. They are of minimal risk to people in general. Certainly, there's always a risk of an allergy attack, but when you weigh the risk and benefits, the benefits so massively outweigh the risks uh, that they're one of the few things that we're basically, we say, universally do. We will cover the costs. It's worth every penny because we'll save money. Mm -hmm. I know that some people um, oppose them. Uh, my advice usually is that, that it's like, okay, um, but we probably shouldn't give it more oxygen than we need to because by focusing so much on it, we legitimize it as a widespread view. And that's part of the problem is that it seems like there's a big controversy because we spend so much time focusing on what a very, very small percentage of the population uh, thinks about them. Um, again, most people, almost every healthcare professional in the world uh, would tell you that vaccines are incredibly safe and effective. Yeah. And someone said, uh, why are there no long-term studies on the safety of vaccines? And I kind of went, huh? Like, there it, are. I mean, <laughs> right, right. I mean, we almost have more long-term studies on vaccines than anything else because people have been getting vaccinated since, you know, I mean, smallpox and beyond. So it's, uh, we have been doing, we have more data. Like I, I, I think it was a chapter in my first book. We actually sort of went through all of the different uh, studies. I mean, by the time you're all said and done, like 24 million people have been involved, if not more, in vaccine studies. It's one of the most studied things in the world. And when you look at all of the evidence from those many, 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 many millions of people in studied, it's safe. So even if tomorrow there's a study of a thousand people and they find 
a statistically significant thing saying it's unsafe, I'd be like, I, it doesn't matter because that's overwhelmed by this 24 million people. You'd need to come up with massive evidence, which is not going to happen, to overwhelm that. It's sort of a done thing in the sense that we've done about as much as we can with respect to studies of this. That won't stop people from continuing to try because there's a hardcore belief of some people that they are unsafe. But again, we've almost amassed so much even long-term evidence about the safety of vaccines that, again, the benefit is massively larger than the risk. And and I should say, like, nothing in life is zero risk. It does not right. exist. The thing is, it's just we have to balance them always, risk and benefit. And with vaccines, it's not even, it's not close. The, the benefit yeah. is massive. And I feel like in today's day and age of, like, with the age of information, there's almost too much out there. Um, it's confirmation bias. Yeah. They're just looking for what they already kind of innately feel and they're going to seek out information that reinforces that uh, belief, even if it is not scientifically backed because what studies can be manipulated or taken out of context. So for someone that is maybe in the middle and they're seeing information on both sides, what advice do you have for them for how to make a decision. The problem is it's easy to cherry pick. I mean, that's one of the biggest things that I think is wrong with the way that we consume health media today is you can find something to support almost any view that you'd like. Uh, What you need to do is find people who are willing to talk about all the research and not not do the cherry picking, sort of the holistically, what do we know if we put it all together and talk about it and, and then and then are willing to discuss honestly what are the the trade-offs in, in terms of risks and benefits, which I hope that is something that I do. <laughs> That's what I like to think I do in terms of, of my writing and my work, but um, which is why I often come down in the middle. But vaccines are one of those instances where, again, the overwhelming evidence, if you are willing to put it all together, is effective right. and safe. It's not It's not a both sides in the sense of like, you know, I think most, you know, reasonable people might just, there are lots of things we could talk about where I'd say reasonable people could make totally different choices. Nutrition is often like an area like that. But with vaccines, overwhelming evidence, safe and effective. Um, I I really have no trouble, you know, advocating for them entirely. What I've seen in terms of people that are saying, oh gosh, there's, they're trying, there's a new term for anti-vax people. I believe that they're not wanting to, they're trying to get, they're trying to rebrand. Okay. What they say is that they used to be pro-vax in that their child had a vaccine injury. Mm-hmm. What do you say in those cases where they, has, they have a child that has had an injury? The problem with linking vaccines to injury. Now, granted, some very small percentage of people have a true injury from a vaccine. They're very small, right. um, but it exists. And therefore, there's like a compensation fund even so that you don't even have to go through the whole malpractice system. If there's a true injury from a vaccine, be it an allergic reaction or something that, you know, that that does happen. Um, but of course, every vaccine is different in how it's made, stored and everything else. So it's not even it's it's not clear. It's, they're just it's a it's a very small group of people, certainly not the size of the groups that often are talking about this, especially when they talk about autism, which is not a proven thing from this. Part of the problem yeah. with the way that people think things happen in relation to vaccines is that Um, If you add up all of the time that a child spends in their first year or two of life and you say, I'm going to add up all the time they spend two weeks after a vaccine, it's a lot of time. So if I took 100 children and I just randomly said, you're going to have something be wrong with you um, and it's going to randomly occur over the first year of life, there's a reasonable likelihood that 
many of them would have that thing happen in the time period after a vaccine with no relation to the vaccine, just because it's a lot of time, months. Right. On top of that, when people get vaccines and when they have doctor visits, they often spend a little bit of time being very hyper aware of their child's behavior and activity. So, mm-hmm. you know, you're worried about a vaccine, they get a vaccine, they cry more, you're noticing the behavior, and now all of a sudden you're picking up on things that might have been there before, but now you're really seeing it. Um, right. That often happens, especially after okay. doctor visits or vaccines. So there's a lot of things which predispose by chance or by sort of observation bias that would lead you to pick up on issues right after a doctor's visit or a vaccine. That doesn't mean the vaccine caused the injury or caused the problem, but it's very hard for humans to accept that. We like to, to link things together, especially when they occur together in time. And so they could be correlated, but not caused. Um, and that happens quite a bit. So I think you know, a lot of times you see people who will blame issues and say the vaccine caused this when it's just either when it happened or when they noticed it and not necessarily due to the vaccine. And what about delayed vaccine? So like or a delayed vaccination schedule. So that's something that some people say like, okay, like I understand the benefits of vaccines. I'm, I'm going to vaccinate my children, but I would prefer a delayed schedule. Do you think that that's something that is a good middle ground or? It, this is the problem with the delayed schedule is the, the biggest problem is that it, it rare it, people often fall off, that they don't wind up. They're much more likely not to complete the vaccines if they don't stay on the regular schedule uh, because it's regimented. It's when the visits occur. It's how we keep things going. It's how we know. Um, and routines matter. Like they help us stay on track. So when people start devising their own schedules, very often they fall off. Um, secondly, a lot of them, we're trying to get the vaccines in as soon as possible to protect kids as soon as we can. And I'm, I'm going to come back to that in a second. Um, yeah. but the idea that we got to, we're going to overwhelm children with vaccines is hard to swallow scientifically. First of all, we're exposed to a gargantuan number of things every day in the air and what we eat. Um, your body is constantly not just fighting off germs, but fighting off stuff. When we used to give out the smallpox vaccine, I think it had like thousands of substances, if not hundreds, that were, uh, you know, in the one shot because it was, wasn't was really as pure as we can make it today. So when you got the vaccine, the old smallpox, it wasn't like one thing. It was like, let's say a thousand. I'm making up a number here. But we have gotten so much better at purifying the vaccines that when you add up the entire like vaccine load that we give to kids they're being exposed to far fewer antigens in the entire vaccine load over a lifetime than they used to get from one dose of the smallpox. Wow. So it's it's not like they're being, you know, when we say, oh my God, how many shots they're getting, it's not that much stuff. And it is infinitesimal compared to the body's ability to fight off things. It's not like, okay, you got your vaccine today. Today, you can't fight off anything else. It's like if we had the ability to fight 10,000 things, the vaccine might take up 10. Right. Where you'd be fine. Okay. So so the reason for delay is low. Now, why do we want to get kids vaccinated early? Because the diseases that we're worried about, especially, I mean, you, I, my, one of my favorite examples is uh, is the, the chickenpox vaccine, varicella. So, you know, a lot most kids will have varicella, you know, they'll have chickenpox and they do fine. The problem is people who are at high risk, babies. So a certain number of babies used to die every year uh, of 
chickenpox. They would get it and they would die. Um, we started instituting the vaccine for chickenpox, and we can't even give it until one year of age. So we're not protecting the babies by giving them the vaccine, but by protecting, giving it to other people, vaccines are often about protecting those that can't protect themselves. Right. And after, years after we gave the chickenpox vaccine to enough older children, zero babies died of chickenpox. So wow. it's like one of those remarkable success stories where it's like, and it's the same thing about all vaccines. Like you're protecting the people that can't protect themselves. You know, most of us will right. weather these diseases fine, but it's not, I want to protect me. Sometimes it is. It's also about protecting others. Um, right. And in this case, by giving lots of people the chickenpox vaccine, we saved all the babies. That's what we do. And it's, when you delay, when you wait, you increase the chance that you get chickenpox and you give it to a sibling, or you increase the chance that you know you're going to get a disease that we could have protected you against earlier. Uh, these things are all done to get them done as quickly as we can, as early as we can, and to make sure that we get the most people the vaccines that they need. So this next question, um, it's actually a question that I had personally pre-coronavirus. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, and it was regarding the Tdap vaccine. Yep. And so I got it and, you know, during my pregnancy and at the time, again, pre-coronavirus, I was, you know, thinking about, well, I've heard that my family members should get it. And I had a conversation with my husband, like, is this something that I am, it's within my right to ask other people to get this yeah. done? So Yes. So now, <laughs> so now, unfortunately, my family will not be able to come see the baby. But, um, you know, for those that maybe have family that do live nearby, what's your answer to that? I wrote a column in the New York Times. It was not that long ago. In fact, my last one was about when can grandparents see a newborn, even in COVID. Yes. And one yes. of the things that I'm pretty sure that I stress, unless it got cut out, was that even when all these other barriers have been overcome, they have to get their updated vaccines because now we recommend the people at a, at a certain age actually update some of the vaccines, like you mentioned in order to, to make sure that we're protecting them because some of the, the immunity may wear off. So yeah, I think it's completely like I'm. you're protecting those who can't protect themselves. You're protecting your right. baby and asking other people to take common sense measures to protect your baby. And it's not just vaccines. It also includes wash your hands. Don't yeah. kiss the baby's face. Mm -hmm. If you're sick, don't come near me. You know, all the other things that we would otherwise recommend in general, we have to take measures to protect those who can't protect themselves babies absolutely fall into that group. Okay. And um, now how about, like you mentioned, you just wrote a column about, you know, uh, babies and coronavirus and family interacting with them. That was another one of the most asked questions. So in in this moment that we're in right now, what what is your recommendation for families introducing newborns to their family? So the highest risk, remember, with coronavirus is, is to the elderly. Um, and so our biggest concern is about protecting grandparents. I mean, that, or great-grandparents, if you're so lucky. Um, so... Yeah. The measures that I think are reasonable. And first of all, you should be in an area where coronavirus is not raging. Unfortunately, yeah. in some areas of the country, we're getting close to like sheltering in place. And so if you're in a bad, bad, bad area, just lock it down. You know, it's just not the right time. Yeah. But if you live in some of the areas of the country where it's still okay, where things are looking better, then I think, you know, if you're truly careful, if, if mom and, you know, if parents and baby come home and quarantine for say you know up to two weeks which would be great and they're really not mm -hmm. going out and being exposed and grandparents also quarantine for two weeks so that everybody can be reasonably assured i've had no exposures like really be conscious and lock it down then it there's a very 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 low risk of everybody to getting together especially if they just drive directly over you know to see right. baby um 
you know, if you want to be super cautious, there are other steps you can take. Do it outside. Very unlikely mm-hmm. chance of passing an infection outside or much lower. Um, mask up if you're going to be inside. Super wash the hands. I'd still say let's not be kissing babies. You know, it's just yeah. it's uh, there's no reason for that added risk. But if everybody is super careful and takes the right precautions, um, it should be reasonable. Now, I wouldn't have a family get together party. You know, right. it's like grandparents come, aunt come. You know, th- so it's like, you know, we're trying to limit simultaneous exposure. Uh, as much yeah. as possible. But, you know, for each individual decision, um, it seems possible to get risk as low as possible. Are you seeing any babies getting infected with coronavirus that aren't asymptomatic, that are showing symptoms? Well, I mean, there have been some records of kids who've gotten sick, but I mean, th- again, it's rare. Uh, yeah. it's This is affecting, for the most part, uh, the elderly and those with chronic conditions. Um, now, babies are probably at higher risk than, say, a five-year-old, but still... Okay. The risks are pretty low. Plus, this is the kind of thing where it's like, when you have a baby, you should be minimizing your baby's exposure in the best of times to all of these. Like, we're not, we don't bring babies out and like put them into like, we don't take them to uh, concerts. Like, you know, it's just, it's just, or Disney World. Like just newborn babies are, should be protected. Um, And so this is what, just common sense advice I'd give anybody having a baby anyway. It just also happens to apply during COVID. Yeah. Okay. And how about schools reopening in the fall? Do you feel like we are ready for that? It's again, it's so location dependent. Um, Yes. Here's the thing. Again, if you're in an area where coronavirus is raging, it seems very unwise to to do any big groups like that, period. Um, It's a very hard decision to make. There's a lot of evidence that shows that in-person learning is clearly ideal um, and better than what is on Zoom. A lot of kids, especially at the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum, fall behind in general, especially when we have Zoom learning. Um, Having said that though, it's not enough just to say school's important open. We gotta make sure schools are safe. There are, again, we never get risk to zero, but we wanna minimize risk. So there are measures schools could take to make things ideal. I would think trying to do it outside, if you could, better. Trying to socially distance kids or physically distance them, have them at least six feet apart in desks. Don't have them get up and change classes. Don't intermix them. Put them in one place, keep them there. Make them wear masks. Have the teachers wear masks. Have the teachers stand apart. Do not put all the kids in a cafeteria with a buffet for lunch. Keep them at their desks. Ideally, food can get delivered to them. You know, be careful about the busing. Be careful about how they're mixing in hallways. You know, those are all common sense. And in an ideal world, We'd have massive levels of testing. We could do, I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could do asymptomatic testing of every kid every week, say, you know, and then yeah. find the asymptomatic and pull them out. We just, we are not resourced or prepared for this. Right. Um, and so every school has to make a decision about how safe can they make it? How risky is the world around them? What are the trade-offs? And then, you know, come to an individual decision. Uh, and so some are going to go online. Some will be in person. And we will be figuring this out as we go. It's it's not the ideal way to do it. And it it's one of those things you get frustrated about because we've wasted a couple months that we could have been planning this, fretting and worrying about other things that probably were a distraction. Right. And now, how about the coronavirus vaccine in general? So a lot of the, the controversy of people who are saying that they won't get it is because they're, it's, you know, was rushed or there are no long-term studies for it. But then again, to my very limited knowledge, they're basing the coronavirus vaccine off of the prior SARS vaccine. So 
we don't have a SARS vaccine, unfortunately. Because, okay. Uh, so here's the thing. We eradicated SARS. Like, we squashed it into the ground. And we eradicated MERS. We squashed it into okay. the ground. And because of that, they never really completed the vaccines. But the work that they were doing and looking at immunity okay. was not perfect. Now, one of the things that's helping us with respect to this is that we started some of the work on those other vaccines for coronaviruses, which gave us a bit of a head start with how we might approach a COVID vaccine. So we will not have long-term data because long-term data cannot exist. Like that's one of those things where it's like, it won't happen. Like if you're demanded, it's like we have 10 year data, then you will not have a vaccine for 10 years. Um, right. We will have to do safety data. We, in fact, whenever we approve a drug, we don't have data like that. Nothing does. Cause it takes years to get, collect year, you know, years long data. Um, the parts that they are rushing are not rushing in the sense of, you know, we think that they're going to lead to big safety issues. I think it's more of a, you know, how well will it work issue. So every year we got to churn out a flu vaccine because influenza changes its immunity. It's it's one of its gifts slash curses. Um, and so we have to sort of guess what the vaccine is going to do, and we have to make it reasonably quickly because once we think what flu varieties are going to show up, we've got to turn out the vaccine as fast as possible and get it to people. That doesn't cause huge changes in safety. It does cause changes year to year in how well does the vaccine work. Right. Having said that, in almost any year, it's still better to get the flu vaccine than not because it's any benefit is good. Um, and that's what we're probably going to see with coronavirus. It's like we need to make things as safe as possible. And more people getting some immunity is way better than nobody getting any. Um, and so I hear people's hesitation in getting it. But the yeah. only way we're going to approximate a normal society anytime in the near future without horrific loss of life and overwhelming the healthcare system is likely going to be through some sort of vaccine in the future. Having said that, of course, if we got massive levels of testing and or therapies which could prevent it, um, those would also be helpful in approximating a normal, a more normal life. But a vaccine is probably our best bet for rapid transitioning to much higher levels of safety. Okay. Now, I got several questions about the more so the social implications uh, and the development mentally and emotionally of babies during this time in quarantine. So how do you think that the quarantine is going to affect uh, younger kids development wise? So babies, I'm not, I'm, I guess I'm not as concerned by because the vast, vast, vast majority of their development is coming from their parents. Ironically enough, they're probably spending more time with their parents now than yeah, they would get totally. in many other, for many babies are going to get a lot of time because people are stuck. Uh, so, you know, talking to your baby, singing to your baby, reading to your baby, that is like the num playing with your baby. That is like a, that's numbers one, two, and three of everything you should be like, just do it, do it, do it. Babies are going to get that. Even small children, when they engage, as they start to engage and play with others, it's what we call parallel play, not, uh, interactive play and those they play next to each other with their own thing they don't sort of engage with others outside of themselves for a while when they get to interactive play that's where we got to be more concerned because and that look i have teenagers my daughter's hurting like she wants that she is a yeah. social animal she wants to get out and be with her friends this is hard um yeah. and it's so it is more of, of of when we get to where they're smaller children toddlers four five three four five six as you get older like they are dependent they're social animals and they do start to take you know they do take cues from other children and learn by doing things together 
That's going to be more difficult. It's one of the main reasons why we'd like to get to in-person school. We just need to make it safe. Right, right. Okay. So the next topic is another one that as a soon-to-be first-time mom, I've learned is very controversial, and it is about sleep safety for children. So um, just for some background, I joined a group on Facebook that was very science-based, evidence-based, and they are very big on the ABCs, so alone, on their back, and in a crib. Okay. no bumpers, no, you know, yes. no blankets, etc. Um, I've been in that group and, you know, I look to the science and everything. I have to say, though, they're very militant. They're very kind of extreme. And that's just not really my personality. Yeah. So I joined another group and then they were actually on the opposite end of the spectrum. That was um, very anti uh, sleep training and very pro uh, bed sharing. And so you know, I got it. And they were also militant. Like each group won't even allow the discussion right. of, the, of the opposite method. Um, I have since found a group that is a bit more in the middle. But again, you know, I, I do want to look to the science right. and to what is the safest. Um, so what is your take on sleep safety? So the first thing I say to all parents is like, there are no children I see who are adolescents who have a problem sleeping alone. None. Like it's not... We worry about this as if we're somehow going to do long-term damage to our children. And everybody makes it into adulthood figuring this out and how to sleep alone. So you're just talking about when they learn and how they learn. Um, And it can be harder later, but they all learn. It all happens. So it's like, you know, eventually it's going to be okay. Uh, I think, you know, the main concern about uh, bed sharing is safety. Yeah, We have seen, you know, there's a an increased risk of something bad happening with bed sharing, um, especially if parents, you know, fall into certain risk groups. If they drink, if um, sometimes with smoking and SIDS, it can it can come into play, um, you know, and just all of a sudden just, you know, sleeping babies. We, we're trying to avoid asphyxiation and, and, and suffocation. Um, that's the reason we don't use bumpers. That's the reason we have nothing else in the crib. It's just that they're not strong and they can't move. And if they get into a bad position and something gets in front of their mouth, They're stuck and they can't do anything about it. So you want to remove anything in a crib that they could get. So babies just basically sleep, you know, in a onesie by themselves. No blankets, no pillows, no no bumpers, no no toys, no nothing. Like that's just how it's supposed to be. So I think that it's, you know... uh, I'm not a big fan of bed sharing. If you're asking me honestly, did we sometimes do it because we got so tired and we were so, yeah. But, you know, if you're asking my advice, it's it's a risk <laughs> factor. And uh, and I'd say that, like, we, you know, probably stay away from it as much as possible. So the next question is sort of like, what room should they be in? Um, you know, mm-hmm. some people advocate babies should be in the room with the parents, even if they're sleeping separately. Others will say it's fine to put them in their own room. We fell into the other room camp. The American Academy of Pediatrics uh, put out that they recommend in-room until one year of age. And then I wrote an article in the New York Times saying, you know, the evidence for that is not terribly strong. And the evidence that sleep-deprived parents are a bad thing is massively strong. Um, And so, you know, getting a good night's sleep for parents is not only important for parents, but for children, because sleep-deprived parents are more likely to be depressed. They're more likely to, you know, have marital issues. They're more likely to have child neglect or abuse issues. They're more likely just not to be as good parents. So, you know, we do want people to get sleep. So, you know, putting a baby in a safe position with a crib um, in another room is, for the most part, still very, very, very safe. It might be infinitesimally 
less safe than if they were in the room with you, but very, 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 very safe. Uh, so the next, I think, question you're asking was about sleep training. Yeah. So every pair makes their own individual decision. Um, there are periods in life like we, I, I'm more on the earlier rather than later side of this just because it is, you know, easier to train younger children than older children because as they learn behaviors, like they get smarter. And if they learn that if I cry out in the middle of the night, mom comes and she gives me a bottle, they learn to do that because they know they're getting yeah. a reward. And in the same way, even if it's I cry and mom comes or dad comes, they get a reward. That's a reward for a baby. So, um, you know, how do you do it? There's no right answer. They all work. Again, yeah. they all get to the same place. Uh, you know, this is where I say, like, talk to your pediatrician. Find the method that's comfortable mm-hmm. for you and is acceptable for you. All the roads get to the same place eventually. It's just how and when and how much of an issue is it for you. If parents are out of their minds and sleep deprived, I'd recommend they do it sooner. If they don't care and everything is great, who am I to tell them that they're doing it wrong? Uh right. So a lot of this is you just don't want to adopt the militant viewpoint. There's a lot of ways to get to the right answer. One of the biggest uh, criticisms of sleep training that I was reading, I mean, well, on both sides, they kind of they they each tout research saying that their viewpoint is backed up. And the people that are anti-sleep training say that sleep training is mentally and emotionally destructive for the babies and it causes issues for them down the line in life. Uh, Have you seen any research to support that? I would challenge anyone on earth to line up 10 people and then try to pick out which of them as adults were were sleep trained or not as kids. It would be impossible. Um, If, if there's a statistically significant difference, it's got to be so clinically small that it can't really make that much of a difference. There are so many confounding factors um, involved in sort of, also it might be related to how you parent, it might be related to uh, to socioeconomic status, it might be related to other health issues, it might be related to how parents are working or you know how, how much help or resources or support they have. It's just so confounded that to blame anything on the method of sleep training would be nearly impossible. I know I wrote an article on this too uh, years ago at the New York Times. And it it just is one of those that it's like, just, you know, pick the way that works for you uh, and is comfortable. And a good healthcare provider can help you make that decision. Um, And there's also, if one doesn't work, you can try another. Uh, It's just, it's just not worth getting super bent out of shape over these things. This is also where I'd be like, you know, the human race existed for how many years without science to tell us this? We did just fine. Like everybody learns to sleep eventually. (laughs) It's not the biggest issue we've got (laughs) facing us. Yeah. I, I, in one of those groups, um, when I did a post asking about it, um, one of, I think that one of a really great piece of advice someone gave me is your baby is not going to come out of the womb having read all these sleep studies. Your baby is going to do what it wants to do and you need to adapt and make the best decision based off of your individual baby, obviously with safety in mind, you know? Um, so, Another uh, safe sleep question. I'm curious your thoughts. Um, do you know much about the snoo bassinet? No. Okay, so the snoo bassinet is a bassinet that kind of straps the baby in and it and it rocks it. Hmm. What I've what I've seen in these groups is it's controversial because the they say it goes against the ABCs. So I would say, look, look, I'm I just hearing it. Yeah, I'm not a favor of like anything in the crib that's extra, um, because because you strap it in. But what if the baby rolls and now it's stuck? Or what if the, mm-hmm. what if it's just tilting and they start to I don't know it's just like I don't I'm not a big fan of you and like rocking or moving the baby just this it, the stuff you need is incredibly simple we've had right. it forever 
and like it all works. Um, I would not be introducing extra big things to help. So, you know, a, a good example of this is like, you know, for years people were advocating for walkers. Like you put babies in those, uh, yes. you know, walk. It was supposed to help train them to walk because it would support them and they could walk. Well, first of all, studies showed that it actually delayed walking because you're, you weren't getting them the chance to learn on their own. But even more importantly, it wound up being a huge danger because now they could get to stairs and they could go right down the stairs because babies aren't meant to move at certain periods of time. And if you give right. them extra stuff that helps them do stuff they're not ready for, it can lead to terrible, disastrous consequences. So I'm not a big fan of like augmenting stuff like okay. that because the natural stuff works great. Yeah. And a lot of people that are very, there's people that are like, it's almost, I don't want to say a cult because that sounds extreme, but they are so pro snoo. And yeah. they say like, you know, I have, you know, my baby sleeps for eight hour stretches. Like I'm getting so much sleep, but, um, you know, I am doing birthing classes. And one thing that they told me was that babies are supposed to wake up every two yeah. to three hours yeah. to be fed. Um, so do you feel like that that's something that's a bit of a, a conflict with how babies are supposed to so, sleep through the night? I mean, that kind of advice is very early. So it's like only a fool wakes a sleeping baby. Like, you know, just in general. Having said that, the only time that's not true is really at the very beginning of life. So when you have okay. a true, true, true newborn, yes, you want to feed them like every two hours, every two to three hours. And so you okay. are getting up. But as you quickly get out of that first two-week period, then, you know, if they start sleeping in five, four or five-hour stretches, that's great. Um, you're just trying to jumpstart and get them fed as, you know, as much as they need initially. But once you get to, like, two weeks or so, like, again, like, uh, only a full week's a sleeping baby. Like, it's like, you know, okay. just, just, there's not much. Now, again, having said that, talk to your pediatrician or healthcare provider. Like, you should hear right. from them. Everyone has different opinions on this, and some people are much more rigorous about it. But, uh, you know, as long as babies are feeding quite a bit, once they get out of the very, very newborn period, you're doing great. But you don't need to artificially induce sleep before. You certainly don't want to do it at the very beginning because then you do want to feed them often. And even after that, they'll find their own natural rhythm, and you don't want them getting used to, like, rocking yeah. like that because then they're used to that. And when you try to change it, you're going to have its own issues. Right. My, my wife, with our first baby got in the habit of rocking him to sleep just before he laid the baby down. And then she tried to lay, yeah. the, lay him down while he was asleep. Uh, then, of course, it became impossible to put him down for naps. And by the time the third right. shot, it was like, toss her in the crib and walk away. <laughs> Let her learn to put herself to sleep, which is which is much better. Right. Okay, great. Um, so another question that I got is, you know, how to choose a pediatrician as a first-time parent? Like, what questions to ask? Um, I also saw a comment that said, you know, okay, this is my third child, you know, so I, I've learned to take pediatrician's advice with a grain of salt. And I was like, what? Like, what, how, how does that correlate to you having more children and taking their advice with a grain of salt? So it's kind of a two-part question. Um, so yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Every pediatrician has a different style. So sometimes people yeah. ask me like, you know, what doctor should I see? And I'm like, that's a very different question for different people. Uh, you know, everybody should pick a doctor. Doctors are human. So if you had yeah. a pediatrician who was very militant about sleep training and you were not, yeah. then yes, you might eventually be like, this really doesn't make a difference. Um, yeah. Some pediatricians are super rigorous about diet. Some pediatricians are super rigorous about about other things. And 
As with everything in life, we often speak, especially as physicians, with more assuredness than the evidence supports, and we're human. So, you know, we all have our biases, and so there are are certain things and certain times when you absolutely positively want to listen to what a pediatrician says, but there are other things where there's much more choice, and depending upon how, you know, a doctor expresses that, uh, people will learn, you know, you can't can't take everything as, as truth because people will disagree. Now, another topic, uh, breastfeeding. So, um, I, again, from all these groups, you know, I almost feel like these Facebook groups sometimes can do more harm (laughs) than, than good, you know? And I, have heard that some pediatricians even advise like to new parents, like the best thing you can do for yourself is stay off the internet and stay out of Facebook groups, you know? And, um, and that will probably get, have, you know, result in the least possible anxiety in this day and age. Um, so, what is your stance on breastfeeding versus formula feeding? I think breastfeeding is best, but I'm not so I'm not terribly militant about it. So, uh, you know, as long the longer you can breastfeed and the more you can breastfeed, the better. That's about it. Um, so with my with our babies, my wife breastfed, but uh, we had a rotating schedule at night. So she would feed she'd feed the baby right up until and do a seven o'clock feed and then she'd go to bed. I was responsible for like the 11 o'clock-ish feed and I would do formula because we tried pumping breast milk and it just wasn't working. And then I might even do the two o'clock feed, which is formula, then give the baby back to Amy later in the day. So she got a good six, seven hours straight and then she did breastfeeding the rest. And she breastfed as long as she could. Usually I would think it was about six months. Some people go longer, some people go shorter. As much as you can do, the more the better. Okay, have you seen any research to support that breastfed babies have in some way, I've heard um, lower risks of obesity down the line, anything like that? Everything I just said about, you know, before about causation versus correlation is unfortunately yeah. complicated massively by breastfeeding. We will never oh. do a randomized controlled trial of breastfeeding. I can't randomly tell people, you breastfeed and you don't. Let's see what happens. Right. People who tend to breastfeed are different than people who cannot or don't breastfeed. They may be different socioeconomic status. They may work different hours. They may have different healthcare issues. They may have anything else I can't measure. Those babies are different for reasons that have nothing to do with breastfeeding. Something in their life is correlated both with they're going to breastfeed and with the outcome. Um, The differences we see are incredibly small. And even when they're statistically significant, we just don't know if they're caused by the breastfeeding or if they're just related to it. Um, And so, again, I think the evidence says... It's good. And it's also natural. Like we have every reason to believe every other mammal on the planet breastfeeds. Seems like it's a good right. idea. Uh, <laughs> right. So we recommend it. Absolutely. But I wouldn't I wouldn't get, you know, militant at it. As much the more you can do, the better. What I've heard um is that, you know, breastfeeding is it obviously it's hard and that I don't know if it's in society or what, but it is represented as much easier than it is in reality. And that the stress of it being hard and people just being told like, oh, well, here's formula. That is what contributes to um, lower breastfeeding rates way more than, you know, like the actual percentage of people that truly can't breastfeed is really like two to 3%. Have you seen any statistics like that? It depends how militant you're being and how you define can't. Like, I'm sympathetic to people who can't because they have to work or because... Absolutely. So it's like when they say can't, they're usually talking about you have a physical problem, 
They right. can't. And I'm like, that's a pretty harsh way of describing it. Like we have not created yeah. a society that supports moms universally so that they can right. all make the decisions they would like to optimally. So to then say to them, you you have no excuse. You have to be doing this. Ah, it's harsh. I appreciate you pointing that out yeah. because that, that th- those are valid points. You know, like someone's their socioeconomic status, if they have yeah. to work, you know, do they have the mental and emotional support? You know, yeah. those are all play very important roles. Are you a single mom trying to drop the baby off at daycare and they have to be there for eight hours because sure. you got to hold down a job and so they have to be formula fed? I'm not going to ding you. That's right. that, to say you should breast that. No, not until not until we get together and say we're going to support moms so that everybody has the opportunity if they want to, to, to do all the things that they'd like right. to. That's when we can talk about it. Until then, to, to say everybody should be breastfeeding and there's no excuses, you can. Yeah, I, I think that that's a narrow view of what, what can means. Okay, great. I have two more questions for okay. you. This is the last baby-related question. So one question I got is your thoughts on babies and children eating a vegan diet. So I think, again, you're going to find a nutrition I'm pretty lax as long as we make sure babies are getting all the vitamins and nutrients they need. So, uh, you know, when we talk about milk, um, the, what we're really trying to get the babies is fat. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we're talking about formula, uh, we're talking about if they're not breastfeeding, we're talking about getting them sort of, again, all the nutrients and everything they would need. If you can find acceptable alternatives that are providing all the vitamins and minerals and everything that a baby needs, so be it. Um, you know, most babies are going to turn out just fine. I'm, my only caution ever with a vegan diet is to make sure that you're getting all the vitamins and, uh, you know, minerals and everything that you would need that you would otherwise get from milk or animal products, but many, 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 many people lead completely healthy lives with a good diet, with a vegan diet. And that's great. Yeah. Great. Awesome. So the last question is a little bit more personal. It's more about uh, you and your life and your experience. So the name of the podcast is Your Best Life. And the whole point of that is to say that there's there's no such thing as one best life. We all have a different experience, different priorities that has allowed us to, you know, curate our own version. So if you had to pick something in your life that has allowed you to live your best life, what would that be? Therapy. <laughs> oh, amazing. That's the first time someone said that. That's great. Yeah, it's like I'm pretty open about it, but um yeah. I mean if you're forcing me to choose one thing that's probably uh-huh. changed me and my life for the better, decades of therapy. Uh you know, it's just made a lot taken a lot of the edges off issues, allowed me to I think be a better person a better spouse, hopefully a better parent, better friend, um, and to be able to deal with so many other aspects of my life in a, in a healthier way. So uh, yeah. I'm, don't get me wrong, plenty of other advantages and wonderful things in my life too. But if I was thinking of like course. the things that I could change and I go back, it's like uh, that I'm grateful for and that I will not stop doing, that'd be it. Yeah, amazing. And can you also share where everyone can find and follow you? Sure. Uh, so I write pretty regularly for the New York Times. Uh, my blog is called The Incidental Economist. Uh, our YouTube show is called Healthcare Triage. Uh, and on Twitter, I'm Aaron E. Carroll. Amazing. I um, just want to say a huge thank you for your time. I feel incredibly grateful as a soon-to-be first-time mom. Great. Being able to pick your brain. So thank you so much. Um, and I hope you're staying safe and healthy out there. Thank you very much. First of all, let's all take a big, deep breath. Oh, that was a lot that of was information. A, a lot of information and, and it's great because right now there is a lot of noise around on the internet, every, you know, mm-hmm. position contradicting another, you know, stance on it. So it, this is, I hope this clarifies 
a lot for other people. Yeah, I um, especially, you know, gosh, vaccines. Ooh. It was super interesting uh, what Dr. Carroll said about uh, the first uh, smallpox vaccine, where there was uh, right. thousands or whatever, you know, hundreds of ingredients. And then today's vaccine, we've gotten so much better at, you know, having a pure vaccine that actually what the kids are exposed to is way less ingredients than what it used yeah. to be in the first vaccines. I think that was incredibly interesting, incredibly insightful. I agree. I had no idea. No, that was, I, that's the first time I've heard that. And the other thing is cause and correlation. I really actually, what he said about cause and correlation where usually parents are hyper alert when kids get vaccines and they might start noticing things that they were happening even before the vaccine, but now they're correlating you know, the two, okay, this is because of the vaccine, what's going on? When it's not, you know, it's correlation, it could be, but it's not, it's not a causation, right? It's not a cause because right. why the, whatever reaction is happening. That was really interesting. And of course, you know, some things happen. There are some incidents because of vaccine, but he specifically said it's an incredibly small percentage of people. Right. And, you know, I want to say, guys, I think that I've I've said this several times, like, I'm such a middle-of-the-road person. Like, I want to hear what both sides are saying. Like, totally. I, I'm also someone that's not just going to be told someone and take it for face value and for a fact without even looking into anything. Like, I do want to be slightly skeptical of information that I receive just so that I can be more educated and, and look into things and understand, okay, well, even if I was skeptical, this is the science behind it, you know? And I get, I get people's concerns. And I think that it doesn't do society or anyone any good to say like, you have absolutely no right to be suspicious or skeptical right. because, right. you know, like that's only going to ostracize them and almost empower them because they're being told that they have no right to feel this way. Everyone has a right to question things. But at the same time, it is very important to value the science that we have and, um, you know, and to look to the to the most, you know, updated studies. So for those that are listening that like are skeptical or that have questions, I get it. And I don't think that it's the worst thing in the world to have those questions, but at the same time to <laughs> look to, to science and what is actually peer reviewed and backed up time and time again. So. You know what's going to be really hard for me? What? <laughs> Having the baby sleep in another room. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, I believe he said, you know, after a year. After a year, yeah. Actually, I think he had a great point on the, the parent's point of view, right? If a parent is sleep deprived, yeah. then it's really hard to be a good parent. You might get depressed. You might get, you know, very fatigued, you know, not a lot of energy. And, and that, that becomes really hard. So I, I do see that point as well. Yeah. And, you know, when I've had this discussion with like either friends or I've gotten DMs on Instagram, I've heard both sides. I've heard people saying my baby not bed sharing. Um, but my baby sleeping in the same room caused me more anxiety and I got worse sleep because every time they moved, I would wake up, you know, okay. So for that person, they needed to put the baby in another room after the six month time period. And there were others that said that in another room, you know, it caused them more anxiety. So it just, it just really depends, it depends. on the person. Yeah, totally. I see that. Yeah. So anyways, we could clearly talk for hours about this topic. Um, we would love to hear what you guys thought about this episode. Please send us a message or comment on Instagram or on Facebook. I'm very interested to hear what you guys think. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed it and we will talk to you guys next time. Bye. 
And that is it for this week's episode. If you enjoyed it, I would love for you to share with a friend, spread the word and help us grow our tribe. Please rate and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes each week. You can also follow us on Instagram and join our Facebook group, both under the same name, Your Best Life Podcast, to keep the conversation going. You can also send me an email at yourbestlifepodcast at gmail.com and you just might be featured in a future episode. Your Best Life is a Gallery Media Group original production.